Occult Confessions is brought to you commercial-free through the generous support of our patrons. Visit occultconfessions.com and click on Donate to help keep the history of the occult on the digital airwaves. This is part two of our conversation about Christian theocracy, Christian nationalism here on Occult Confessions. My name is Dr. Robert C. Thompson, uh, not coming to you with the general... Uh, opening that we always do, uh, but coming to you rather with an introduction. Uh, the two folks who are with me today are voices you have heard before, but uh, they they have got Christian bona fides, unlike yours truly, uh, and so I have brought them both to uh, for me to hide behind while I make this uh, argument about why Christian nationalist theory is uh, maybe not the best idea or theologically fully thought through, but we'll get there. First, let's introduce ourselves to Johnny Cook. Welcome back, John. Hey, it's good to be back. Patron progenitor. So they say. And John, I recently found out that you are a primitive Baptist, or you were a primitive Baptist. I was raised primitive Baptist for about 20 years. That's a long time to be a primitive Baptist. It is. (laughs) (laughs) For folks who don't know, primitive Baptists are fascinating. The first thing that comes to my mind, as I said to you when you told me about this, is that the preacher doesn't say anything. The pastor doesn't speak unless God inspires the pastor. Otherwise, it's possible they might just sit down. You've seen that happen? Uh, Once or twice. It's not super common because generally there are backups. So if the primary pastor doesn't have something that he is feeling led to say, there are probably like two or three alternates that, you know, might have something to say, whether it's only 15 minutes or a half hour or whatever else. So you never know how long church is going to be. It could be (laughs) it's going to be 15 minutes. You could be there for an hour. Generally, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what if the alternates feel moved, though? They're allowed to get up, too, even oh, yeah. after the pastor's done his thing, the main player. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it doesn't uh, always happen, but, uh, yeah. It's been a while since I've read about the primitive Baptist. What other features are there to, to that belief system? Um, well, it's a pretty basic thing. You know, it's kind of makes sense with the name primitive Baptist. Strip away all the nonsense. Get yeah. right to the core. All the... There's a... Uh, how we had, um, at the church that I went to, it was 30 minutes of acapella singing to old school hymns from like the 18, 1900s. Lovely. And then it was usually an hour of preaching, whether that was one person for an hour or one person for 15 and one person for 45, that sort of thing. And then every other week was like a, a fellowship potluck. Afterwards. Yes. Yeah, uh, uh, that almost sounds okay to me. I gotta be honest. I kind of like that acapella nineteenth-century uh, hymn thing. That yeah, it was uh, just all voice. There was one person in the front leading it, um, but it could be a different person every day. There was generally no spotlight on a specific person. The simplicity is nice. I I like that about it. It's so um, counter to the movement of Christianity generally especially in the 20th century, which has gotten so fancy with all the rock and the, you know, band in the front and the lights and all that stuff. It's just you guys in the church. Yeah, the the word that I heard a lot when people at that church were describing modern Christianity was carnal. <laughs> Speaking of carnal Christianity, let's talk to the singer in the band, Evangeline Olsen. Hello. <laughs> What's up? So you are, you are in a modern Christian church. You're a yes. preacher's daughter. Yes. You're still a practicing member, John. You'd say you're out, yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't. Okay. I don't think I identify completely, and I don't go to church. But it's not like I've abandoned all beliefs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I hear that about you. That makes sense. Uh, but you're you're still a church goer, Evangeline working things out yeah but it's okay it's okay yeah the confessors love you nevertheless (laughs) uh go to church we love all people of faith uh so uh, tell us a little bit about your upbringing then in in the church uh well it's a non-denominational church which i don't even know how to explain really um but yes we do have the band in the front and you are the band i am part of the band i'm not the whole band i don't just you sit are a up bandman with all the instruments and my voice well, you're the singer yeah you're yes. the singer in the band yes, there's am. other singers i know but you are frequently the singer in the band yes, yes. i normally sing by myself don't though. be shy <laughs> 
All right. So tell us a little bit more about what, what do you what do you think characterizes your experience in the church? As John pointed out, a few features of primitive baptism. What would you say? I would say that, like, I mean, I grew up on it, so it's it's hard to. You don't I know guess. the difference from I other kn- things. I know the difference, but it's hard to explain the difference. Okay. I mean, I went to Sunday school, you know, and. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um. <laughs> but I mean, this is a church that your family started, right? Yes. So, you know, it's a, a, I mean, I think that really characterizes it as non-denominational. It's a sort of upstart, uh, new church on, on the shore, um, that you do, do the, the more contemporary music. Yeah. It's fun. We do hymns sometimes too. It's a, I still love you. <laughs> I'm not saying but, that. I mean, I'm it's, just it's more of a fun, uh, environment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Say yeah. like more dancing and stuff. Dan- yeah, not not going to happen at a the little primitive bit more Baptist upbeat. church. Uh, I don't believe so. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's the devil right there. That dancing. Yeah, as you as you were saying, like the like your family started it, where where I went to church, there was such a huge emphasis placed on tradition that there were certain people that would spend a lot of time tracing the lineage of our particular church all the way back to Wales in the wow. 1600s. That's wonderful. That's yeah. that's crazy. Yeah, ours started in my family's living room. Which is also wonderful. I, I also enjoy the entrepreneurial we, spirit. So it's a new Christianity, new school Christianity. We that, didn't have a band in the beginning. No, oh It was well. just us in the living room. You were still working on your vocal technique. No, I was two years old, so <laughs> I was probably running around upstairs. Your vocal technique was mostly screaming. Yep. <laughs> All right. Uh, so these are my panelists today, uh, which are going to give me some uh, some background here and uh, some some help as I wade my way into a biblical conversation, which is theoretically way over my head. But I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. Let's pledge it out. We, the members of the secret order of alchemical actors, do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. All right. Now. Uh, we would like to, uh, let me see, welcome a few patrons. Uh, can we get some sounds to open the order of confessors here? Oh, oh my goodness. That was in concert. Uh, we've got the golden prawn, David M, Luna K and Dan P. These are some delightfully different perspectives about the same topic from the same quote unquote group. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're all alchemical actors, after all. Yeah, that's what brings us together. <laughs> as, I mean, as far as as far as under the umbrella of Christianity, two wildly different upbringings, yeah. and oh, yeah. you know, church points. Yep. Very. We want to thank uh, Sorio Sorio Five says, "Love the show. We're intelligent and congenial." Uh, loves the Soul series. Thank you very much. I'm with you, Sorio. That's my favorite. And uh, Meister Miss Toya. This is the second time I have to say that. Just joined our patrons. Also says A plus. Love it. Uh, latest guilty pleasure. Oh, I'm a guilty pleasure. That's nice to hear. All right. Speaking of guilty pleasures, close up that order of confessors and let's talk about Christian nationalism. <laughs> so much cooperation between the traditional and new school Christians here. <laughs> The notion that God wants humanity to live under a worldwide Christian theocracy is associated with a variety of interrelated but separate schools of theology, including Calvinist Reconstructionism, Dominion Theology, and Theonomy. If this evangelical jargon makes your ears glaze over a bit, a simpler way to think of these Christians is that they'd like to establish a system of biblical law on earth. They are post-millennialists. This is the opposite of pre-millennialists who uh, tend to get much more attention. A pre-millennialist believes humanity is destined to undergo a long and arduous period of tribulation before paradise is established on earth. One such pre-millennialist absolutely confronted me in the parking lot of the supermarket on Halloween day and told me it's okay. Jesus is coming. It seems bad, and it's going to get worse, but Jesus is coming. That's the premillennialist perspective, that earth is going to hell, but it's okay. Jesus is coming. We're not really talking about them when we talk about Christian nationalists. They are fun. Don't get me wrong. But they are not in this party. Uh, 
because they, they're willing to let Earth go to hell. A post-millennialist expects that by first establishing paradise on Earth through the implementation of what they understand to be God's law across the nations, this will usher in a long period of earthly perfection, which will then culminate in the events of Revelation and Christ's return. Different visions. One, things go to hell. The other, we perfect Earth. In both cases, Jesus comes back. Don't get me wrong. But just, he comes to a different place. <laughs> a, a apocalyptic hellscape or a wonderful paradise. One of the most sober and influential theologians of the theonomic perspective is a scholar named Gregory Bonson. A theologian scholar, I guess. Theological scholar. And Bonson published his ideas first in 1977 in his book, Theonomy in Christian Ethics, a classic of Christian nationalist thought. So uh, this is going to be my focus today. I, I said when I started this series that I was only going to talk about the most sober representatives of these ideas. And for the most part, I'm going to hang with that. You know, raving lunatics of Christian nationalism are not really fun to debate with because they're raving lunatics. So you're just like, well, because that guy's a raving lunatic, he's probably wrong. Bonson is not a raving lunatic. He makes a reasoned case. I just, and I, spoiler alert, think he is wrong. Uh, and I will tell you why from his perspective. I mean, that's the other thing I'm going to do today. There are some outside perspectives that I'll bring as an occult confessions scholar of occultism, but I'm also going to go ahead and uh, work on my Bible here a little bit. So I'm going to take it from the Christian standpoint insofar as I'm able to. And if I go off base, I have two Christian folks, Christian bona fides here to back me up. Gotcha, Rob. All I'll right. try my best. I'm messing with the phrase bona fide for those of you who are like, why does he keep saying bona fides? Okay. <clears throat> so, Bonson's main enemy is autonomous ethics. Autonomous ethics. Free floating ethics. Free balling ethics. Ethics arrived at through reason. That's bad. Follow me? Any ethical system that depends on the individual to either reason or feel through the precepts of right and wrong is, says Bonson, necessarily arbitrary in its pronouncements and therefore morally bankrupt. If a serial killer reasons or feels that it is reasonable to kill, then it is for him. Man, says Bonson, is forced, I'm quoting him directly here, is forced to find direction for himself, and the inevitable outcome is subjectivism and relativism. Any ethical conclusions are arbitrary since they have no authority on which to base their claims. You got me so far? See me on the serial killer? Yeah. Mm. The phrase relativism is a common enemy of the conservative right. Uh, although the conservative right, in my opinion these days, has been playing some relativistic games when we get into, I don't know, Q beliefs and that kind of thing. But... Um, it's the idea that you can determine your own morality that is most offensive. In fact, it's the opposite of ethics, he says. Because, like, from the Bible's perspective, man is inherently evil and wicked and needs the Bible to kind of shape their life to make them less so. So if you're only relying on your own brain, which is inherently wicked, then you can only come to wicked morals. Uh, yeah, and uh, I mean, you can see, like... In in these, uh, I'm not. What am I looking for? These, um, you know, banner, uh, attention grabbing, scandalous issues uh, that that the right often uses to to attack the left, like you know, calling pedophiles child attracted persons. This suggests a moral relativism underneath. Yeah, you see. Uh, oh well, you know, from the pedophile standpoint you know it, it's the behavior is all right um Ooh. but but we can i mean that that's a relativistic reason it is not fair to say that the left in any country necessarily believes that um but you see the argument but if you take the logic that is generally placed and just make it extreme then you can kind of pick it apart yeah yeah you huh. slippery slope in a way yeah P pushing things on down their slippery slope as far as they go yeah and see what kind of where they end up
Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but, but, I mean, that's the core of this argument about ethics. By relying on the Old Testament, as John says, and the New, as the literal word of God, Bonson does not suffer this quandary in his own ethics. His ethics have roots and motivation. However, to my occulty mind, they are no less arbitrary. They only seem more authoritative because Bonson assumes a universe in which they are the only ethical pronouncements to make claims of divine origin. But, even in this very initial claim that Bonson's making, let us suppose we place the Bible up next to the Vedas, or the Buddhist scriptures, or the Analects of Confucius, or the Popol Vuh, or the Tao Te Ching. Which one's right? Are we going to judge by, by population? Because then the Analects of Confucius probably have us beat on the Old and New Testament. China's a big country with a long history, not to mention the Tao Te Ching. So Bonson closes his eyes, in my opinion, spins the wheel, picks the Bible. But I think his choice is as random as any other. Bonson believes his book is the only one recorded, uh, recording the word of God. But that belief could not be defended uh, any more reasonably, or as being any more reasonable, than the beliefs of a Hindu or a Buddhist, a Confucian, a Lakota Sioux, an Igbo traditionalist, or a Mayan, who have their own books that they believe are divinely inspired. Let's suppose Bonson is right, though, because otherwise our argument can't get much further than this. <laughs> Let us say that as Westerners, the Bible is our best articulation of God's will for us. I, I'm going to just give Bonson that, and we're going to go from here. But, but I, I think that my earlier questions still hold water. You have thoughts on this, John? I have some thoughts about a couple of your earlier points as well. Yeah, as go far ahead. as the, you know, what you said pre and post millennial. Oh, all the way back there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, just a, yeah. Quick, a quick thing where I think the pre millennialist. Is that the right term? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we'll see what you say. But. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you said they believe that, you know, the world is going to hell and then God's coming back. Yeah, let it go to hell. Which is like they're reading into Revelation, I think, is where that kind of derives from. It's a way of reading Revelation. Yeah, yeah where like the thousand year reign and all that kind of stuff comes from. Mm -hmm. Where like God will actually establish like a kingdom here for whatever. But that I could actually see them coming to that conclusion, whereas the post-millennialist, I don't know where that comes from. You mean that's a more strained reading of the Bible? Probably. Well, the years of paradise precede Christ's return in that case. Okay. Yeah. But it is a bit strange, yeah. I mean, when you think about the events of Revelation, if we have this perfect period of peace on earth why we would have like dragons and antichrists and stuff after we've been following God's law for a thousand years seems a little strange. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the, that the, the post-millennialists seeking to kind of, I don't know, this is probably a better point for later on, but I, I feel like the, the people that are pushing for that sort of control of other population by, their laws because it makes them feel like they're doing the right thing especially when it comes to the old testament mm -hmm. it just reminds me a lot of the pharisees oh go on right yeah. where it's like they have their beliefs in their heads right that they're following the law mm -hmm. quote unquote letter of the law holier than thou sort of attitude and trying to push that on everyone else as sort of a control aspect instead of an actual um, following of the New Testament. We're right? going to get into that for in, sure. In, a, in another way to put it, in the same way, but in another way, is like it's kind of hypocritical because the Christians were prosecuted and said, you can't have this religion, and you know they became martyrs and stuff. And for us to say that we have the only way and that everybody has to follow that way, it's kind of hypocritical to everybody arc of history man yeah <laughs> pretty much put a pin in these things we're going to get back to them for sure particularly this idea about the pharisees so in his introduction bonson worries that quoting here arbitrary standards of crime and penology which doesn't have to do with penises you people with your minds in the gullers 
have resulted in a crescendo in the crime rates in all major cities of the world. So, in other words, uh, penology there, meaning uh, the way we, we penalize people, that the way we uh, deal with crime and the way we, we punish crime is bad for us as a society. The age of enlightened reason, he says, has played itself out into a degenerated ethical state. Alleged moral neutrality and lawless assumptions have, en have engendered a clash between statism and anarchy, which has its parallel in the moral environment of the Roman world. Presumably, between the so-called Enlightenment era, circa 1700, and ancient Rome, circa 300, the Western world thrived under a collection of Christ-centered kings. I mean, you would have to conclude that if he says that in our post-Enlightenment world, we're in this, you know, crime hellscape, and the it's just like how ancient Rome fell apart. That implies that between those time periods, we were doing just swell. Yeah, not the Dark Ages. Because these this, these were the Christian... This was the Christian era. I mean... It, like Charlemagne and... Yes, yeah. I mean, beginning with Charlemagne, really, if we're being fair the installation of Christian kings across Europe and the implementation of a uniform Christianity across the nations of the world, albeit with Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic, but still, everyone's Christian. And the same Christian, with one guy determining, the Pope that is, exactly what that Christianity looks like. It's a kind of perfect Christian universe in the medieval period, post-Charlemagne, as John's saying. So let's take a look at the medieval world, shall we? Um, according to Cambridge's Violent Re Violence Research Center, homicide was about as common in medieval London as it is in cities of comparable size today. The absence of firearms meant it was harder to kill somebody, but the absence of modern medicine meant it was easier to die. More than half of these violent crimes occurred in public spaces. 4% happened in churches, and 1.5% happened in brothels. So this is our perfect Christian paradise. Speaking of brothels, the medieval church considered brothels a necessary evil to curb men's lust and prevent them from assaulting or corrupting innocent women. Welcome. Welcome to Christian Europe. Bonson's view of history is clearly very deeply colored by the time in which he is writing. The homicide rate more than doubled in the United States between 1910 and the Great Depression, from 5 per 100,000 to almost 10 per 100,000. It dropped back down below 5 per 100,000 in the 1950s when things were good and we all had our little suburban houses and listened to Elvis. And then it rose steadily through the 1980s when it reached a peak of nearly 11 per 100,000, driven in large part, I assume, by Prince and Madonna's music videos. Then in the 1990s, the murder rate dropped steadily again and was just above 6 per 100,000 in the year 2000. While there are hundreds of arguments about why the homicide rate has followed this pattern in the United States, it's difficult to argue that the theocratic power of the Christian right, which had to contend with Bill Clinton, abortion rights, and the gradual enfranchisement of gays and lesbians in the 1990s, had much to do with these fluctuations. Remember, things got better in the 90s, right? And we couldn't have been more... Uh, I don't even know, Clinton-y. <laughs> it was wild times. We were doing the Macarena. We could just as easily give credit for the decline in the crime rate to MC Hammer or the Game Boy as we could to Pat Robertson 700 Club. It sounds like the dates that you mentioned, like around the Great Depression in the 1980s, were around severe financial crises. I wouldn't be surprised if the murder rate rose also around 2008, 2009. Yeah, when people are in poverty, when people are desperate, desperate yeah, yeah. Um, suffering, depressed. So, I guess I have to say the world is not really going to hell in a handbasket. Sorry, Bonson. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that God wouldn't rather we live under a Christian theoc theocracy or Christocracy. So we, we can't speak for God here. What if God would still? Like, maybe the crime rate is completely irrelevant, so I don't think we need to throw the baby out with the bathwater here. Much of Bonson's argument uh, to that end, to the end that God wants us to live according to God's law, rests on the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon, with a capital Sermon, is one of the more beautiful articulations of ethical philosophy in Western culture, or at least it's widely regarded that way. 
and it includes an oft-overlooked comment on the law, meaning the Old Testament law of Moses, or the Decalogue. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, nor the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly would be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is saying there, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen. You are to follow the law to the letter. And he's talking about the law of the prophets, the Old Testament law. Does this sound, my Christians, like what you were told about Judaism? Should you be good Jews? No. That was never brought up. (laughs) (laughs) But this is right in your Bible, y'all. Yeah. Yeah. But I believe there's also a passage. I forget who says it exactly, but there's also, it's, someone says, I forget whether it was one of the apostles or Paul or Jesus himself that said, like, there are only really two commandments in the New Testament, which is love God and love your neighbor. It's a bit contradictory, isn't it? It is. <laughs> yeah. if, which, which, how I've come to reason that is there has to be different meanings behind each thing for them not to be contradictory. So he has to be meaning something else than the literal words that he's saying. In that moment, in this moment in the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. I'm going to give you another way out here today, but I appreciate that interpretation. It's difficult, though, because he's being so explicit about it. Yeah. Not the smallest letter. You know what I mean? Go ahead. Oh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I thought you had a thing to say. I, I thought I did, and now I'm just confused. All right, let me try he, he this. Could also, he mentioned, until it is finished. Yes. On the cross, he said, I believe he said, it, it is, is finished. finished. Oh, that's true. So here we toss out the law? I guess, oh, well, yeah. He does say that, um, I forget, I think it's Jesus that says it, that it's like you don't have to practice the things that were practiced in the Old Testament because uh, Jesus died for us. And then... That was kind of like, like, we don't have to sacrifice animals. We don't have to. Yes, we're going to get to the ceremonial. But hang with me here. So Jesus makes this very explicit comment, but he's referring to like the next 30 days. He just really wants people to follow the law explicitly for the next several months. But he doesn't he I know for I know he does direct people to explicitly disobey the law. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. During while he was on earth. So it, it wouldn't make sense for him to set that example and then tell someone the opposite. Let's get right? into the complexities. Yeah, you're on to something. Jesus goes on to say, first, let's make this harder than it even is. <laughs> he goes on to say that the commandment against murder, and I'm sure you've both heard this in church, actually entails a prohibition against hating another person, which he says is committing murder in the heart. Similarly, it is not enough to keep from sleeping with another man's wife. A good believer must also keep from lusting after or desiring said wife. We'll save that for our sex episode. For Bonson, Jesus is not editing God's law, but rather clarifying a point about it on which the Pharisees have been wrong. The Pharisees have only focused on, as John said, external behavior in their interpretation of the law. That's basically what you were getting at, right? Not the spiritual content, the internal elements, which is what Jesus wants us to focus on. The law is both external and internal, political and spiritual. Performative and internal. Exactly right. So this is an amendment to the law. So Jesus is both saying, follow it explicitly to the letter, but also internalize it. Let it be a spiritual thing, not just that, you know, you turn off the light switch and don't turn the lights on on the Sabbath day and that kind of thing. But you have to live without light, right? (laughs) Rather than, you know what I'm talking about? This is a Jewish prohibition, Orthodox Jews, they're not allowed to, to turn switches on and off on the Sabbath day. 
I didn't know that. Yeah, so sometimes they'll leave it on and then not touch the switch until the until after the sundown. So okay. like the night before, you would turn the switch on and just leave it, let it run until the sun goes down the next night. So you don't have to t- operate the lights. You're not supposed to operate electricity is the idea. Interesting. It's huh. a reading of the law. Yeah. Jesus says, quoting Exodus, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. This is a reference to a rule in the Old Testament concerning pregnant women, by the way. If someone injures a pregnant woman, says the Old Testament, they should be answered accordingly, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The Old Testament doesn't actually say that you this is how you respond to anyone. It's just if a pregnant woman is involved. Someone hurts her eye, you take out their eye. Yeah, fun really? fact. Really? Interesting. Yeah, fun fact. I, I've never heard that before. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Old Testament God was hardcore, but he wasn't that hardcore. He didn't want people all poking each other's eyes out, but he really wanted to be careful around pregnant women, and I'm with him there. Here, Jesus is most definitely amending the law, and it's difficult to argue otherwise. He's saying, Old Testament Yahweh told you to eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and his audience would have understood the pregnant woman thing, but who cares? Now he's saying, don't do that. Disobey that law and do this instead. Turn the other cheek. So the same Jesus in the same book is what is going on here it's confusing what this is just a theory but what if he's preparing for when he you don't have to follow these rules from after the cross yeah post cross yeah that's just then you should do this okay (laughs) you guys are really hanging on to this jesus was only (laughs) talking about three months thing okay (laughs) and let me drive the point home jesus says You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Yet again, Jesus wants us to follow the whole of the law in detail down to the smallest letter, except a couple of laws (laughs) where he's like, nope, don't do that one. I didn't mean that one. I meant all of them. Just not that one. Bonson wants us to think that Jesus is preserving the whole of the Old Testament law, with the exception of what he calls the ceremonial laws. This is how Bonson works around this. He creates two kinds of laws. There's the laws we're supposed to follow, and then there's the ceremonial laws that he says Jesus threw out. Sounds a little arbitrary on his part, doesn't it? Here we go. It's a little confusing. (laughs) Clearly, Jesus was preaching preaching a softening of the Old Testament God's warlike approach to the enemies of his chosen people, which is a fairly significant amendment. If you've read your Old Testament, Yahweh did not mess around. When he didn't lie, when he thought it was time to purge a city from the face of the earth, he said, Jews, annihilate them. And they did. Jesus is saying, we don't annihilate. We are not annihilators. We're so chill. (laughs) Paraphrasing, of course. So it's starting to feel like Jesus's actual message on this question has been lost somewhere in Matthew's interpretation. Let me see if you guys are comfortable with the way I let you off the hook on this. (laughs) The Sermon on the Mount is essential to Bonson's argument that contemporary Christians should observe much of the Old Testament code of law. But that's it. This is the only time Jesus says this, this thing about every jot, every letter. And the historical case for the sermon happening as Christians have come to understand it is not actually particularly strong. To begin, the sermon only appears in Matthew, and possibly Luke, depending on how you read what has come to be called the Sermon on the Plain. And I like the Sermon on the Plain far better, personally. Do you guys know the Sermon on the Plain? It doesn't sound super familiar. Yeah, because the Sermon on the Mount is what Christians lose it over. But you've got all these weird passages in it. You just skip over, you guys. (laughs) So it's been a minute. So the Sermon on the Mount, is that the one with the loaves and fishes? Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is the repetitions. Uh, um, it's no loaves and fishes. No. Okay. <laughs> I don't. I don't know where it's it, the Lord's Prayer. 
is in the Sermon on the Mount. Okay. Yeah. Oh. That kind of stuff. Uh, so Matthew describes Jesus uh, going up a mountain, which was geographically impossible because there were no mountains where Jesus was in what Matthew describes. Matthew and Luke and everyone's geography are often a little fuzzy. Mark is always the best. Uh, but it wasn't. This sermon is not in Mark. No, it's only in Matthew. Okay. It's not even really in Luke. And I'll tell you why. Luke describes Jesus coming down from a mountain in the Sermon on the Plain. Do you see? He either went up a mountain or down a mountain. They're both wrong because there was no mountain. It was all flat where Jesus was supposed to have been at this point in the gospel. These could very easily be two separate sermons, mount and plain, but it's also possible that Luke took his sermon from a lost source, the so-called Q source that Matthew riffed on. Uh, And so Matthew and Luke both riffed on them because Matthew's take is significantly longer than Luke's. Sermon on the Plain is much shorter. Both versions begin with what's called the Beatitudes. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Does this now sound familiar? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Blessed are you who hunger, uh, for now you will be satisfied. Blessed are the meek. In so this is in both. So it's it's already makes you feel like oh this is the same if because we know that Matthew and Luke wrote their version their their gospels but while reading a sec another gospel that is gone disappeared we call it the Q source scholars of religion so when we see the repetition of these words it really starts to feel like these are in the Q source and both men are reading these words in the Q source and then writing their own version thereof which turns into the Sermon on the Mount for Matthew and the Sermon on the Plain for Luke in both Jesus calls on his believers to love their enemies in Luke Jesus asks us to judge not lest ye be judged while he doesn't reference Exodus, he does talk about eyes. Rather than find fault with another, a person should first remove themselves from sin. First remove the plank, he says, from your eye before calling out a speck of sawdust in your brother's eye. But Luke does not record Jesus' command to follow the law to the smallest letter. This command, I can't say it enough, is only in Matthew. They're both reading the same book as they write their own adaptations of it. One of them writes this weird passage. The other one does not. One of them writes about an eye for an eye. The other one writes about an eye and a plank. There are similarities about loving your enemies, but there are also these weird differences. So. <laughs> what? <laughs> Sorry, blowing Vangeline's mind here. Mark, who is the oldest and therefore most authoritative of the Gospels from a historian's standpoint, actually directly contradicts Matthew on this question of the law when Mark has Jesus dismiss all of the Jews' dietary laws, saying that Jesus declared all foods clean. Only in Mark. I can't say that for certain. But Matthew wants you to eat the right foods according to Jewish dietary law. But Mark says, nope, Jesus said don't worry about that. Bonson has no real response to the absence of this statement of the law uh, in Luke and could simply argue that Luke was summarizing Matthew rather than that Matthew was elaborating on Luke. Clearly, I think Matthew is adding his own stuff. But Bonson could go the other way, and I can't dispute that. But this whole debate does show us the degree to which Bonson can't simply claim that everything in the Gospels is true, a kind of literalist fundamentalism, because the Gospels don't agree. It's a common thing, right? I'm sure in both of your churches to say these four books are the Word of God and they are perfect. But unfortunately, as historical documents, they disagree with each other, which means that we can't ever read them perfectly literally. They disagree on a variety of points. Number one, where and when Jesus was born. Number two, what day the Last Supper happened on. Number three, whether Jesus' disciples should carry a staff or not. Number four, 
Who discovered Jesus in his tomb? Number five, what crimes Barnabas was guilty of as he hung crucified beside Jesus? Number six, whether it was an angel or two angels or a young man who was in the tomb with Jesus when, uh, when his disciples showed up. Jesus wasn't in there, was he? They were in, it was in there instead. The angels were in there instead. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Jesus was gone. Jesus so, was gone. But if you read every gospel, everyone's going to tell you something different about what they actually found in that tomb. And this is the most important moment, I think, in the whole gospels. I mean, from a religious standpoint, this is the moment where Jesus performs the, his greatest miracle of ascending bodily into heaven. But we don't have agreement on what that moment even looked like. Any of these things could be ritually and theologically significant. And the question of Jesus' perspective on the law, a single line in a single account, shows just how important these differences can be, given the way the Bible is often used to construct our beliefs, philosophies, and whole ways of life. And by our, I mean Westerners, uh, but particularly people who identify with Christianity or are raised in the Christian church. We can hang whole movements and ways of life on a few lines that are not really well documented when we compare them with the other Gospels. I think this, this is definitely one such case, in my opinion. This weighs me up. Wait till sex. <laughs> <laughs> Sweating, pounding on the table. It seems like Matthew was poetically constructing a parallel between Jesus and Moses by putting Jesus on a mountain. This makes Jesus' comments on Moses' law pretty poignant it's also possible so think about it the sermon on the mount moses comes down from the mountain with the law of moses jesus goes up on the mountain and says you are to keep the law of god this is a nice matthew's doing something it's doing something pretty there it's also possible that matthew was arguing with paul who many christians believe released them from the obligation to follow much of the old testament law but we can really only speculate there paul and matthew would have been contemporaries more or less uh, Paul never knew Jesus, um, and Matthew was writing around the year 80, I think, um, something like 60, 70, 80, somewhere in there. So uh, it could be that Paul had just died when Matthew wrote his gospel, and but, but either way, uh, there are early Christians who don't see things the same way. I mean, pretty obviously from the way Matthew talks about the law, or has Jesus talk about the law, because that's far more authoritative than Matthew riffing on his own. All this having been said, there are very few smoking guns in biblical scholarship on the subject of Mark. Bonson believes that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and so has released humanity from the Old Testament ceremonial laws, as John was saying, while continuing to bind us to the moral and civil law. When Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross to purge humankind of sin, Jesus relieved us of God's requirement for blood animal sacrifice. This extended to other so-called ceremonial matters like diet, but... Jesus was not clear on this point, as you can see in Matthew. And so it's up to Bonson and other writers interested in theonomy to determine what's ceremonial and what's moral and civil. Evangeline was getting a little uneasy because you have to pick. It feels like we're saying, you go, here's the rules. God wrote them down. Go ahead. But Bonson's saying, just kidding. Uh, we don't know which ones are which. These are the three categories. This category, don't worry about. But you pick it. You pick which ones belong in that category. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> For me, this whole ceremonial law thing is suspect both from a literary and metaphysical perspective. So I agree. Jesus doesn't say in Matthew that people should follow every letter of the law except the ceremonial ones. He just says all of them and you would think he would have noted that in that moment when he was telling people to follow them to the letter as for the metaphysics an important part of the appeal for bonson's theology is that god wants us to know how to behave in order to facilitate our salvation bonson says i'm quoting him the law does not save a man but it does show him why he needs to be saved and how he is to walk after he is saved god was explicit about his rules on the subject of idols, for example, God said not to worship idols, not to bow to idols, not to make idols, not to make or cast images, not to make gods of silver or gold, not to turn people into idols, not to convert people to idol worship, and to destroy cities that worship idols. 
We screwed up. Oops. If that's what we're following. We need to destroy some cities or what? Mm. <laughs> well, I have it right in my hand. <laughs> this is pretty significant, this idol thing. Am I, not, am I right, my Christians? should probably throw away that giant golden calf I have in my right. back. <laughs> it's almost like you can imagine there's like this little kid trying to catch God out on a technicality. Like you say, oh, you can only have one piece of candy. And the kid's like, by one piece, do you mean like, what if I cut these three pieces and eat one piece of each? Does that make one? Like <laughs> the kid is sitting there like tugging on God's robes and, <laughs> and the kid is like, okay, so you say I can't worship idols, but what if I make an idol of you in silver? No. <laughs> Gold? No. What if I don't worship idols, but I talk someone else into worshiping idols? No. What if I idolize this really awesome Roman guy who carves naked ladies in soap? No. How about if I worship a tree, a stone pillar? No, no good. Can't do any of it. Old Testament God leaves zero room for error. That's what I'm trying to say here. And yet, when Jesus comes around, he says, according to Bonson, we're required to follow the whole of the law except this vague category of laws called ceremonial, a term Bonson doesn't ever fully explain. So suddenly we're on our own. God was being real explicit with us, and now God's like, figure it out for yourself. I'm done, kid. I'm tired of explaining years, this to you. Just listen to this guy Bonson I have coming up. <laughs> yeah, I'm out. Just listen to I'm out. <laughs> and yet, when Jesus comes around, if sacrificing oxen, for example, is ceremonial, why isn't all this idol stuff ceremonial? How about not getting a tattoo, not cutting my beard, not shaving my head in mourning? How about marrying my childless brother's widow? How about wearing cloth woven of both wool and linen? All laws in the Old Testament. Bonson and apparently God leaves us on our own here, despite Yahweh's tradition of being remarkably sp specific with his Hebrews. <laughs> Where are all the Levites out here leading churches, right? Right. We could use a few Levites. That's required, is it not? It is. Biblical Christians, Bonson says, must not only face up to their obligation to keep the entire law of God, they must also take responsibility to do their exegetical homework as to determine which laws are, be, are to be continually observed as abidingly moral. Bonson wants us to, to, to believe that God has laid out an exact code on how to behave uh, you just have to find it yourself through a cr close reading of, and uh, by the way, contra to Bonson's fundamental moral premise, reasoning over the text. Think about that. He told us we can't reason for ourselves. Only God can tell us the rules. But now he's telling us, oh, God didn't. Isn't he reasoning, though? He has for the to. Bible? Yes. Oh, gosh. Well, not only he's reasoning within the Bible, because... God didn't tell us which laws are which. We have to go through each individual law and come to a conclusion, logically and reasonably, about whether it is moral, civil, or ceremonial, and toss it out if it's ceremonial. But that requires reason, because God seems to have left us on our own with the New Testament. Whew. Leaving aside the historical and philosophical coherence of Bonson's claims, which is... Much more slippery than Bonson wants us to think. I hope you understand me now, or believe me anyway. Let's look at the implications for the running of a government. So I'm on the home stretch here, guys. Let's, let's bring it on home. How does Bonson's reconstructionist approach to the Old Testament law apply to fantasies of a Christian theocracy? Quite clearly, says Bonson, the civil magistrate and judge are considered the vice regents of God in the nation, and their job is to judge and penalize according to God's law. The same can be said of the earthly ruler. In the tradition of David and Solomon, the king is bound to God's law and must carefully observe all of the statutes without swerving to the right or the left of the book of the law. This is Bonson telling us how a judge is supposed to behave. So if all this, you've wondered where I'm at on Christian nationalism, when we're talking about Bonson's case for following the law, this is it. It's not just that you should follow it, it's that the state should implement it as its own legal code. This is not to say, however, that the church and state completely overlap. Bonson actually is not going to agree with my idea that, you know, they're the same. Each has their separate domain, but both exist to serve God. When the Pharisees came to trap Jesus between the Roman uh, civil obligation to pay taxes and Jesus' claim, 
that all came from and belonged to God, Jesus asked whose image was on the coin. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's. Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. This is an endorsement, says Bonson, of the separation of church and state. There was, he says, a distinction between the work of Moses as leader and Aaron as priest. Going back to the Old Testament, the state wielded the physical sword to cut down the sinner. The church excommunicated the sinner's soul. The state serves the external and the bodily. The church serves the spirit. But this does not give the state leader autonomy from God. The priest and king worked separately, but both depended on God to sanction and legitimize their power otherwise. Otherwise, God would usurp them. A leader's role is to observe God's law so as to further the cause of establishing God's kingdom on earth. To do otherwise would be a dereliction of duty and imperil your everlasting soul. It is possible for a person to follow their own religious or spiritual path under such a rule, but only internally. Externally, they must follow God's law as it is imposed by the state. Religious freedom is a matter of conscience, but behavior in Bonson's state is controlled by the Christian magistrate. If you're caught, I don't know, masturbating while looking at pictures of your neighbor's wife, legal, but in the, Christ, the Christian magistrate could certainly punish you for such a thing in a Christian state. You follow me? Mm-hmm. So th- are they trying to recreate the ancient Jewish hierarchy of the priests and then the judges? You, I mean, Bonson certainly likes the priests and the judges. I don't know where they sit in terms of hierarchy, but they certainly are determining how we behave. I mean, okay. Because I feel like that they're, at least from how I understood it, was they were equal but separate. Whereas there would be legal matters that were handled by the judges and then spiritual matters were handled by the priests. He's saying this is true, but the judge is, both of them are following the law of God. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't, and John, correct me if I'm wrong, but somewhere in the Old Testament where it's like that God says that you have to follow the law regardless of anything. And they ask for a king at one point. He gives them a king and it's not a good king. Not even a Christian king, but he's like, oh, you asked for a king, now you have a king, and you got to follow the law. Yeah. Despite the leader not being Christian. Yes. Yeah. Well, in a perfect world, we would be Christian. But... I get your... Yes, I understand the moral precept here, that if you have a leader who will not endorse your religious beliefs, you must follow them nevertheless. Yes. Bonson's perfect world creates a system in which all of our leaders are also following the same religious precepts. Isn't he playing God, though, in that sense? Who? John? <laughs> well, I think he's also he's also assuming that humans are capable of following God's law perfectly, Oof. which they are inherently not if you are f- a believer in the Bible, because it's kind of explicitly stated that they're not capable of doing such a thing. I mean, this is a post-millennialist perspective. Is he playing God? We are meant to play God to a certain extent by ushering in our own paradise in advance of God, in accordance with God's law. So I, I would say yes. If we are attempting to do this, we are attempting to play God in the way we are creating paradise on earth. Theoretically, a divine project, not a human project. Okay. You see what I mean? So, I mean, so that's if, post-millennialism in a nutshell. So they think that through God, they're able to create something perfect. But that's impossible. And so yet? They try, I guess. <laughs> I mean, but that just makes even more chaos. I, I mean, this helps a little bit with, you know, the Trump and stuff. Like, we wonder about these imperfect vessels for God. These guys are not following God's precepts, but they create theoretically an environment in which we can and in which the state permits us to do it in a more open way, I guess. I could see how that's that works, I guess. I, I mean, it's not exactly your Old Testament parable there. Uh, Trump is personally not very Christian in his behaviors, and yet he is legislative program follows a christian nationalist paradigm for the most part on questions of abortion and prayer and these sorts of things he talks a mean game and often walks the talk um and so i think that's the what the love for him from the christian right comes from that space but uh, yes i i mean i don't even know if that gets us anywhere truth be told because at the heart of this is a playing of god yeah for sure we're we're going to establish paradise on earth we are. 
God wants us to. God oh, said how. That's... God told us how. Now we will do it. No matter how Bonson attempts to qualify his theocratic designs, there is actually nothing in his theology that suggests anything but a state completely beholden to a theocratic set of laws. Hair splitting in any direction doesn't separate Bonson's theonomy from its underlying project to extend his interpretation of biblical law to the wider population. This is fundamental to his vision for a perfected moral, political, and social order, and any movement attempting to impose particular religious beliefs onto the legal code of any nation must necessarily hold at least some of Bonson's philosophy to be true. Reason, in such a view, is an inadequate resource to uncover moral truths. Only divinely revealed scripture can provide the foundation for an ordered civilization. And it is God's will that we live according to a specific interpretation of a specific text, even though humans are responsible for both the act of interpretation and the act of selection among the texts worthy of emulating. Final thoughts today. I'm trying to think here for just a second. It's Again, I just I, every time I think of that, I think of the the Pharisees and their performativeness and their again holier than thou attitude, mm-hmm. where they are the ones that are capable of doing this thing that no one else is capable of doing, and they're going to force you to do this thing because they are, again, the only ones capable of doing it. it In a perfect world, we'd all want to do this. Yes. But it's exactly what, like, God was, or Jesus was fighting against And showing the hypocrisy of. Yeah, that's exactly what he didn't want, so, like... Do you think this is inherent in a program that creates an elaborate system of laws, according to the Old Testament, that necessarily we're going to be forced into an external versus an internal mindset? You see what I'm asking? Like you can't create this system of laws. You can't argue for this portion of the Sermon on the Mount without tending in this Pharisaical direction. Oh, tending yeah. against oh, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Jesus, and so in your both of your minds, Jesus is purely focused on the soul and is not concerned with these external things. Yeah, yes, he's, he's I would say way so. more way more interested in in the heart and the intent than what you do with your physical body. Which is exactly, I think, why, like, the Holy Spirit comes in at the end, like, when when Jesus passes, and then, like, they're like, okay, what do we do now? Like, do we continue our laws? And he's like, no, don't do that. Do you remember? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah, where the Holy Spirit is kind of like a a barometer. Yeah. Where it's 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 your conscience and the Holy Spirit interacting with each other to kind of tell you how you're doing in relation to god where it's like if you will feel a weight on your on your conscience from the holy spirit if you're doing something that is against what god wants you to do you are doing not what other people are doing yes exactly my point thank you it's all a personal (laughs) a personal relationship with god not a not a you dictating things to other people about how they live their life because if it's a personal relationship with God, you don't have the authority to dictate someone else's personal relationship with God, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. And do you think your relationship with God is at all tied to the law? The uh, laws of love God, love your neighbor. But not every letter of no, the No, because Old I think you can honestly, every single law, this is probably too general of a statement, but every law in the Old Testament can be put into love God or love your neighbor. Well, if God really wants you to not cut your beard in mourning. That could be... I mean, it's what I'm saying, I guess, is that's very specific. Well, <laughs> and, like the... and the only way you can take that as a sign of loving God is because God told you not to. The way yeah. you can honor your parents by, I don't know, taking out the trash. It's not even really like taking out the trash. Like the not cutting of the beard is a fairly arbitrary thing. I'm sure biblical historians could tell me, well, Rob beards in the year five meant but yeah. the, the um, you see my point like some of god's laws are are seem pretty external and arbitrary yeah so the only way i could boil them down to your two laws there is insofar as god has asked for it i show love for god by observing this specific thing uh but as a spiritual practice it doesn't seem especially strong to 
just avoid doing a bunch of stuff that God doesn't like. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, but you could also you could also look at it as if someone feels the need in their own life to do that sort of thing because they feel like God is they feel like that is loving God and that brings them closer in a spiritual way then I feel like that's good. What if you feel you making a golden idol of God makes you feel like you're closer to God? I, I don't say nothing, that to be There's flip, nothing against that, I don't think. Well, except explicitly telling you not to. In the Old Testament, <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think the... Well, I that's think, what I mean by the Old Testament laws can't necessarily be boiled down to these two because you run into contradictions like that. Yeah, right. I think most of the laws would be abolished, which I think is what Jesus said in some passage, that all of the laws that were in the Old Testament were pretty much abolished except for those two things. Well, I mean, the the law of not worshiping idols... If you if you if you want to love God, you wouldn't worship an idol. You wouldn't want to worship an idol if you wanted to love God. Does that make sense? Yes. I'm not I, saying they all will, but I'm saying like if you generalize kind yes. of what the laws are trying to do. I think you could work your way into it. Uh, it just gets tricky, I, I suppose. Insofar as that golden idol, uh, I, if I could make a golden idol of God. And then I'm worshiping God in the form of the golden idol. I'm not actually worshiping the golden idol. Well, that's 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 what a lot of a lot of churches do. That a yeah. lot of churches have like stained glass images of God and Jesus, and you and know, that's a that, controversial thing if yeah. you get down to it theologically. I forget what it's called. That the uh, they the crucifix. Like the, no, no, the oh. little the little uh, scenes of the manger. There's like a word for it where there's like the manger and Mary and Joseph. And like the goat, the nativity scene. That's what it yeah. is. Yeah, just stuff, stuff like the that. Goat. They're treated the like. Goat. I know. There's always a goat, right? Always, always a, goat. a goat and a sheep. Sheep and the goat. Well, because and the sheep and the goat, the good and the bad. But they could, they could uh, work sort of like an idol. If but we it is, to it do is them in the way, attempt yeah. to love God by showing respect. So that purifies it. Yeah. 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 Okay. If you look at it through a New Testament lens, then yeah. yeah. And this, but that this theology that you have then is very big tent. It invites in Hindus and Buddhists and all sorts of folks who oh, yeah. more or less follow these exact precepts of loving neighbors and loving God. It's all it's all in the heart. It's not in the actions. Bonson would not like this at all. I don't really think I like Bonson. Uh, I gotta agree with that. <laughs> well, Christian nationalists generally, because they are legislating for other people. When we think about the abortion legislation, I don't want to get into it in depth. I have mixed feelings about the whole matter, but this is legislating for others. I mean, that at its core, I do believe, is that I can't make this choice for somebody else. Yeah, yeah. I feel like that. If more people lived like that, it would be a lot nicer. I know that's kind of a cliche thing to say, but no, but I I agree with that. Like. I think so many people want to dictate what other people do. And if you force something on other other people, it, it just makes things worse, especially like really force things. People are going to find their way around it either way, and it can become a dangerous situation. I mean, I'm going to give Bonson his due for a moment here just to play the uh, devil's advocate, as it were. If we view the, in the abortion question, if we view the fetus itself as an individual, I, I certainly think that I'm entitled to say uh, your moral, your ability to determine your own morals stops at your ability to harm my well-being. You see yeah. what I mean? Yeah. I mean, and that fundamentally, I think, is where the abortion question gets so complex. And, and I think when we get into gray areas, that's where I step away and say, okay, unfortunately, I have to leave this up to the individual. Maybe not unfortunately, maybe fortunately. Um, but, I mean, we're not, we, could, we couldn't exist in this pure, perfect moral universe where we're loving our neighbor and loving ourselves and loving God and not set some strictures on the way we treat each other. Because we could believe we're doing all of these things and still be doing harm. Yeah, you, yeah. Could, you could think that you are loving your neighbor by putting these stringent laws on their life because it's good for them. Quote right, unquote. we'll get them into heaven. Yeah. Or, I don't know, by, you know peeing on their window maybe we think they're into that but they're not into that but that sounds kind of arbitrary <laughs> doesn't it well it wouldn't be a rule i just you know we you just decide to do it you're like i i think my neighbor likes it i peed on the, my neighbor's window last week and, <laughs> and he seemed to like that i'm gonna go give it another go because i love him because i love Cause him i love him yeah uh <laughs> yeah, it gets weird. Anyhow, uh, we'll crawl. We'll <laughs> <laughs> Bring us on home, somebody. 
I hereby adjourn and declare closed this meeting of the secret order of alchemical actors until such a time as we get together and do it again. We want to thank Malik Hopkins for doing the voice of Jesus of Nazareth this day. Uh, my name is Dr. Rob C. Thompson, joined by Evangeline uh, Olson, a neophyte, soon to be titled, I think. You just Yay. say bye-bye. There you go. Bye. Well, yeah, once you figure out the exit routine, then we'll title you. Uh, and Johnny Cook, patron progenitor. Good to see you all again. And to hear you, John, and to speak with all of you. Uh, so concludes our two-parter on theocracy. Uh, the next subject we are going to tackle is the prosperity gospel. Here on Occult Confessions.